I have been asked several times in recent weeks regarding what I plan to do when I step aside from pastoral ministry come September 1st. And I have answered that question by saying, I fully intend to become an economic burden to our three adult children. I mean, fair is fair, right? We paid the bills for 18 years, and in our case, we're still paying bills as all of them have attended grad school. And so I plan to make the circuit. And I plan to intentionally and strategically live with and off them until they get so fed up that they kick me out, whereupon I will go on to the next debtor, and so on and so forth. Repeat as necessary, ad infinitum, Sila. I am looking forward to retirement. On a more serious note, I do plan to devote much of my time and energy to what has become a kind of second job for me, particularly over the last 20 years. That being my involvement and my passion for social justice. Many of you from Daybreak know that when I was in seminary back in the early 1980s, I providentially stumbled into the world of sexual abuse in religious circles, which really wasn't on anybody's radar at the time. And when people asked me what I was researching for my thesis, and I told them, they said, what are you looking at that for? Well, you know that years later, there is seldom a week that goes by that we don't hear about some kind of sexual abuse taking place in the religious world. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, on July 13th, for example, the state of Wisconsin announced its Department of Justice has received more than 100 reports of sexual abuse by clergy and faith leaders, Roman Catholic and Protestant, across the state since announcing a statewide investigation last April. One of the organizations I presently serve with has been and remains very active on current files involving sadly some very well-known and high-profile figures in the evangelical world. Seldom a week goes by that I'm not talking to lawyers, to media, to victims, and to perpetrators regarding a file that we are working on. This morning, then, as we continue our series of messages titled Gifts of a God-Focused Summer, I wish to intentionally stimulate your thinking with respect to a topic that has become a real passion of mine. 
And it's become a real passion of mine because I believe it is consistent with the heartbeat of God himself. Justice. I want to begin with just a little bit of classroom language about the Christian understanding of justice. That's because when we talk about justice from a Christian perspective, it's helpful to be somewhat conversant with a concept that is known as natural law. What is natural law? Most of your Catholic friends could answer that question for you. Natural law is a perspective in ethics and philosophy, a field in which our second son is presently studying and doing his doctoral work at Oxford University in. It contends that human beings possess intrinsic values that govern our reasoning and behavior. In short, natural law teaches that God has written on our hearts, God has written on our consciences, if you will, an innate knowledge of what is right and wrong. Another angle from which to approach the matter is this way. Natural law holds that there are universal moral standards that are inherent in humankind throughout all time. And that these standards should form the basis of a just society. Human beings are not taught natural law, per se, but rather we encounter it by discovering our natural capacity for making choices for good instead of evil. Some schools of thought, such as the Christian worldview, believe that natural law is passed on to humans via a divine presence or a divine influence. And so against that very hasty background regarding natural law then, I want you to hear the primary and studied assertion that I wish to place before you today. I've chosen to state it this way. A passion for justice is at the heart of what it means, at the core of what it means to be a Christ follower. Let me repeat that. Think about it as I do. A passion for justice is at the core of what it means to be a Christ follower. Now, why do I make this claim? I want to briefly offer four answers to that question for you. Number one is this. The theme of justice emerges early and repeatedly in the Old Testament. Okay? The theme of justice emerges early and repeatedly in the Old Testament. There are several Hebrew words used in the Old Testament that essentially mean just or right. They're often translated righteous, 
pointing to the existence of a right way of thought, a right way of behavior as opposed to a wrong way. That is to say, the Old Testament from the outset acknowledges the existence of a moral standard that is designed to lead us both to right behavior as individuals and to just patterns of conduct as a society. Consistently throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, it is assumed and prescribed that the right, the just, the natural manner of behavior toward the less fortunate, toward the poor, toward the impoverished, toward the distressed, is for those who are blessed with more, those who are blessed with abundance, to share with and assist those who are comparatively without and are in need of the basics of life. You see, long before the G8, long before the G20 nations of modern times emerged, there was this governing principle for human society that the right and natural thing to do in famine, for instance, is for those regions, those peoples, unaffected, to share liberally with those who are starving, with those who are without. God's intent is that such be done because sharing is simply the right thing to do. Irrespective of nationalist or economic priorities that involve taxes and tariffs, just as we love because he first loved us, so too we are to act justly towards others because he first acted justly toward us. To elaborate for just a moment in this regard, did you know that the Old Testament Exodus stands as one of God's initial public statements regarding the immorality of injustice and oppression? Follow along on the screen as I read to you from Exodus chapter 6. God is speaking to Moses. Moreover, God says, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Ron Sider, one of the evangelical world's finest theologians on the matter of justice, says this, The God of the Bible, who is just, desires to be known as the liberator of the oppressed. That is a part of the overarching story 
behind God calling out a people for himself. Similar to God originally granting mankind the freedom of evil to choose for ourselves, freedom from tyranny and oppression is God's preferred status for all people. What do you think of when you see something that is made in China? You see, justice, I believe, is far more than just a political ideology. It has strong spiritual overtones and implications. Made in China, I try my best to live according to a principle that if it's made in China, I put it back on the shelf. Do you know how hard that is to find certain things that aren't made in China? Last week, our microwave went out in a blaze of glory, a puff of smoke. And my wife said, oh no, here we go. Because she knows what is to come. I'm on the look for a microwave that's not made in China. If you know where I can find one, please let me know. Now I joke, but to make a serious point, the point is that when people live in tyranny and in oppression, as God's people, it should trouble us. Because the theme of justice emerges early and consistently in the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons I maintain that a passion for justice is at the core of what it means to be a true Christ follower. Second reason. Israel's failure to maintain justice in Old Testament times was a major reason they were taken into Babylonian captivity. Hear that again. Israel's failure to maintain justice in Old Testament times was a major reason they were taken into Babylonian captivity. Again, to quote Ron Sider, soon after Israel settled in the Promised Land, they discovered that Yahweh's passion for justice was a two-edged sword. When they were oppressed, it led to their freedom. When they were the oppressors, it led to their destruction and their going back into captivity. That's why you read the prophet Amos indicting the northern kingdom of Israel with these words taken from Amos chapter 5. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and you impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many your offenses are and how great your sins are. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. 
Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. That was Amos speaking to the northern kingdom. Here Isaiah is saying to the southern kingdom in Isaiah chapter 10, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and to withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? And then, a hundred years later, after Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah comes along saying to Judah, who apparently were very slow learners, Jeremiah chapter 5, Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like man, who snare birds, and like those who set traps to catch people, like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Friends, the Old Testament prophets banged the drum for justice over and over and over again, which is partly why they never won any popularity contests and often were literally run out of town. Our God has always opposed injustice. He's allowed it to prevail at times, yes, but it is not and never has been his will for injustice to prevail. It's therefore fair to conclude that the consistent message of the Old Testament is that God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the abused. It's a principle that has long guided my life and will dictate how I spend much of my time and energy in months and years to come because I firmly believe that it is at the very core of the Christian notion of redemption and reconciliation. Israel's failure to maintain justice was a major reason they were taken into Babylonian captivity. In other words, those who claim to be the people of God but become oppressors in their own right will pay a price for our spiritual myopia. That's another of the reasons I maintain that a passion for justice is at the core of what it means to be a true Christ follower. This reality is why recent incidents of racism that have come to light on 
both sides of the Canada-U.S. border weighs heavy on me. What might be the price that the Christian church in North America has yet to pay in its being both an initiator of and complicit with the oppression of North America's indigenous populations? Heavy topic. But the complexity of the issue should not deter us from having the discussion. Does it concern us at all? Why or why not? What are some of the false assumptions that we make about God's inclination to bless us or not, given the historical records that we are aware of and possibly somewhat complicit in? The third reason why I maintain that a passion for justice is at the core of what it means to be a true Christ follower is that Jesus, our Lord, consistently modeled the priority of justice throughout his ministry. Jesus, our Lord, continually modeled the priority of justice throughout his ministry. St. Luke tells us that at the very outset of his public ministry, after being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus made a very clear statement citing the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Don't miss that connection. Regarding his purpose in coming into the world. Luke 4.18 says this. Jesus is speaking. At the outset of his ministry, he declares, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, some of you may not like what I'm about to say. Notice that Jesus does not say, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to die for the sins of the world. Because he has sent me to tell people how to get to heaven, how to obtain eternal life. Friends, the evangelical church is as guilty as any other component of Christendom when it comes to interpreting, or perhaps better, reinterpreting the words of Jesus to make them conform to our particular or favorite spin on theology. We take that Greek word translated good news in the scripture. The Greek word euangelion, from which we get the word evangelical. And we do all kinds of interpretive dances with it in an effort to conform it to our purposes. And we end up spiritualizing terms like poor, prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. No, 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 Jesus says. That is not rightly dividing the word of truth. That is wrongly misreading the word of truth. You see, the fact of the matter is that every original hearer Every original reader of Isaiah 
every Jewish listener to Jesus would have taken the words poor, prisoner, blind, oppressed in their literal sense. Those who are without monetary wherewithal. Those who are behind iron bars. Those who are without physical sight. Those who labor under oppressive landowners. If you want to spiritualize these terms, you do that after, after, after you apply them literally. Otherwise, you flunk the principles of Biblical Interpretation 101 class. Jesus could not have been more crystal clear regarding a major reason concerning his purpose in coming into this world. That being to teach, to preach, to live, and to model how to do justice. You want to be like Jesus? You want to truly be a Christ one? Then to borrow from the Old Testament prophet Micah, act justly. Act justly. Just do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. A large part of the reason why throughout my pastoral career I have served on the boards of community organizations like the John Howard Society here in Calgary on the Mustard Seed Board, on the board of aftercare ministries for ex-inmates, is because of the Spartan example of the Lord Jesus Christ. His model is why today I serve with and will continue to work hard with Safety Net International and Airdrie Power, which has just opened a day shelter for victims of domestic violence in our city. For many years now, I've been part of a group called Red Letter Christians. It's an assortment of believers from all ethnicities, from all branches of Christendom, that take that old reality of, remember those Bibles that printed the words of Jesus in red? We intentionally focus on the words of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus takes very literally a commitment to the least of these. Reason number three why I insist that a passion for justice is at the core of what it means to be a Christ follower, Jesus consistently modeled the priority of justice throughout his ministry. And then lastly, you all heard that word, lastly, the kingdom of God emerges here on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever and wherever justice prevails and reigns. I believe that with all my heart.
The kingdom of God emerges here on earth as it is in heaven whenever and wherever justice prevails and reigns. You see, contrary to what too many churchgoers assume, Jesus did not come into this world to solely proclaim pie in the sky when we die by and by. He did not come into this world merely promising to get us out of this mess as soon as possible. Jesus came into this world to teach and to model for us how to reclaim the sordid complexities of this world for the kingdom of God. In the Lord's Prayer, found in Matthew chapter 6, which is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to pray for daily bread, to forgive us our debts, to lead us not into temptation. All of those things that have relevance for today, not some time way off yet in the future. Whenever justice rebukes, corrects, and prevails, God's kingdom shows up in this life. In the first chapter of Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus was saying, okay, it's time. Let's get this party started because I represent the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We're going to take this world back. The kingdom of God is near. In fact, it is here and it is already at work. Yesterday I received news that I was expecting and yet never wanted it to come. And that is that my Auntie Martha passed away. She was two weeks shy of 105. As I think back of her life, and I lived with them while I was attending school in Winnipeg years ago, I couldn't help but think that if sandwiches were dollars, Auntie Martha made millions in her service to the Union Gospel Mission on Winnipeg's North End. If meals were dollars, she made millions over the years because she was chief cook and bottle washer at Bird River Camp east of Winnipeg. When I lived with them, when I was going to school, I watched her make dozen after dozen after dozen bakery sections full of cinnamon buns. And when I asked her who she was making them for, she'd say, oh, so-and-so from the church because they're going through a tough time right now and need some encouragement. 
my dear Auntie Martha was always doing something for people in need. And she's been one of my mentors throughout my life of what it means to minister to the down and out and to the oppressed. You see, we get it wrong when we assume that the kingdom, God is, the kingdom of God is something only yet to come, something that is still way off in the future, or something that exists only in heaven or in paradise. Yes, the universal revelation and recognition of the kingdom of God is yet in the future, but we affirm the kingdom of God has its foot in the door here already every time we provide wherewithal for the poor, every time we make time for the abused, show care for the incarcerated, every time we say no to the exploitation and abuse of the less powerful, every time we bake, make sandwiches, knit socks for people at Northside Mission, at the Mustard Seed or wherever, like my Auntie Martha did so faithfully for all her years. Reason number four why I insist that a passion for justice is at the core of what it means to be a true Christ follower. The kingdom of God emerges here on earth whenever and wherever justice prevails and reigns and kicks down a door. Let me really get in your face as I conclude this evening. And you're not going to have to listen to me anymore, so you're probably saying thank God. But two questions for you as we conclude. First one is this. What do you do on a regular basis to sacrificially ease the burden of the oppressed or the less fortunate? Just let that sink in for a moment. What do you do on a regular basis to sacrificially ease the burden of the oppressed of the less fortunate? Well, I know for a fact that many of us give money. That's very important. I just read a news item this past week that for the first time in nearly two decades, only half of U.S. households donated to a charity, according to a study released this past Tuesday. The findings confirm a trend that is worrying the experts. Donations to charitable causes are reaching record highs, but the giving is being done by a smaller and smaller slice of the population primarily the older set. But giving money can be a comparatively easy task. As I conclude my message and my ministry at daybreak, I want to issue a verbal bouquet to our good food box volunteers because I know you have the same program here at Renfrew. Our good food box volunteers, God bless them, helped the kingdom emerge in our community during COVID by giving their time week after week. And I cannot applaud them enough. Because time is today's commerce.
Second question, and this is really going to get me in trouble. As a Christ follower, do you view the world primarily through the eyes of a consumer or through the eyes of a steward? As a Christ follower, do you view the world primarily through the eyes of a consumer or through the eyes of a steward? Are you primarily concerned only to save a dollar when you go grocery shopping or clothing shopping? Or are you a good steward of the money the Lord entrusts you with by doing some research into how vegetable companies like Bolt House Farms and Salad Express mistreat and underpay their migrant employees in Central California, all the while paying the compliant politicians to look the other way? Do you check out Walmart's dependency on Asian sweatshops? Do you educate yourself regarding Shell Oil's egregious record of human rights abuses in Nigeria? This is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to living justly. To be a disciple means that you're committed to be disciplined. And to be disciplined means that you sit down and spend some time finding out where the money you spend on food and clothing ultimately ends up. That means, friends, that every day we live, every day we live, we are loaned from God opportunities to act justly. I hope that some of what I've shared with you today will prompt some serious thinking, some discussions around your dinner tables about what it means to do what the Old Testament prophet Micah said, to act justly. I conclude with a very short prayer of one of the great warriors of social justice that I've gotten to know over the years, a privilege that I'll always treasure. He's now 86 years old and slumped over in a wheelchair, but he often concluded his talks, his sermons with this prayer. Help us, Jesus. Amen. Amen.